Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. The United States is known to produce some of nature's most severe weather as it allows for just the right ingredients to come together. As extreme weather becomes a more common occurrence, many have begged the question, will we see more severe storms and even tornadoes as our world continues to warm? Today's guest is Dr. Harold Brooks of the National Severe Storms Research Lab, and his research seeks to help to answer that very question. His extensive background in severe weather has offered him the opportunity to study these changing trends in tornadoes and severe storms in recent decades. While storms may be getting worse, the exact answers of what we can expect in the future are more complicated than you think. Let's dive in. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, Georgia, and Harold, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Welcome. Good to be with you, Marshall. Well, you know, Harold and I just saw each other in Boston as we uh, were at the American Meteorological Society Centennial Meeting, and I, I'm almost certain that this topic came up there as well. Um, before we get into the main reason we have you on the podcast, which is to deep dive on severe weather and climate change, we always like to ask our guests how you how you came about becoming a meteorologist. Well, I kind of stumbled into it. I was a physics and math undergraduate at a small liberal arts college. And, you know, most of us looked around for sort of a, a research opportunity after or before your senior, your senior year. And the department had had a, a guy about a decade before who'd gone to a, a program at, at uh, the, the Goddard Institute for Space Studies in New York that had eventually led him to being a, doing black hole research with Kip Thorne and, and Stephen Hawking. Uh, and they said, that might be a place you think about going. And by that time, it had become much more of a, of a climate-oriented uh, prop summer. And I modeled the last glacial maximum climate using what was at that point the brand new climate boundary conditions. And they invited me to come back for graduate school. So you were a climate guy first? Yeah, I'm a climate guy originally. I was a climate guy. I, my, my master's was actually on looking at um, the uh, dispersion of volcanic aerosols in two and three dimensional tracer models. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I modeled the, the, the last age, ice age climate was my very first experience in, in weather and climate. And then for a lot of reasons, uh, both work-wise and personal, I was. I decided I needed to to leave New York, and um, Illinois was a was a good location for me to go to for my, for my personal life. And one of the postdocs at the time at at uh, Gis Inez Fung, her office mate from graduate school, John Walsh, was the chair of the admissions committee at for graduate school at Illinois that year, and he she reached out to him and. I, thunderstorm sounded like an interesting thing to study, and Bob Wilhelmson had an opening, and the brand-new National Center for Supercomputer Applications was had, had just started up, and Bob called me up and said, come work for me, and 
that's kind of how I got started in, into weather. And we're talking with Harold Brooks from the National Severe Storms Research Lab. He is a research meteorologist at NOAA's lab there. 28 years in, uh, he got his bachelor's degree in, at William Jewell College in mathematics, uh, as you just heard, a master's from Columbia and his PhD in atmospheric sciences at the University of Illinois Champaign, which is one of the top programs within our field. And I... I you know, it's interesting because Harold is also in, in another life. I'll share something. He's a he's a volleyball ref and my daughter is a volleyball player. And so as I was ex- as explaining to my family who you were, I say, well, I, I consider him one of the top experts on tornadoes and severe storms in the world. So we are talking to someone that knows severe storms and tornadoes. And it's an honor to have you on the podcast. He's also been a guest on the TV version of the show as well. So, Harold, let's just jump right into this. The United States is a mecca for severe storms and tornadoes. If you look at a global climatology, the United States tends to be a a somewhat hot spot for tornadic activity in general. Uh, Can you give the listeners a 101 of why that is? Sure. When we when we look at where severe storms and particularly tornadoes occur around the world, we're looking for where do the ingredients that are necessary for storms come together. Uh, and we really want to look for warm, moist air at, at low levels of the atmosphere near the ground, relatively cool, dry air above that. And we also want to have the, the winds change from blowing from the equator at low levels to blowing from the west aloft. And if you look at uh, the map of the U.S., when the winds blow from the equator or from the south, that's bringing up moisture from the over the Gulf of Mexico. And when wind blows out of the out of the west aloft, that brings that air over the Rocky Mountains or the high desert of the of the southwest. And that's the best way to get that that relatively cool, dry air is to have that is to have it come over that wide, high range of mountains. And so, in the middle part of the country, if we have the right wind profile that would make storms be particularly severe, we're also bringing in the ingredients that we need for temperature and moisture. And really it's the only place on the planet that has it has all of those geographic features uh, set up in such a nice way, in such an easy way for the atmosphere to create storms. You go into South America and their moisture source is typically off of the, off of the Amazon and the Andes may be taller than the Rockies, but they aren't as wide. They get some incredible storms down there, but they tend not to be as high a fraction of them as tornadic. And any other place you go, it's hard to get at least one of the ingredients to come together as often as they do in the middle part of, of the United States. And, uh, and there you have it from Harold Brooks. I want to also mention to our Weather Geeks podcast listeners, bear with me today because I I just mentioned that I was in Boston, and so I am fighting off a little bit of a cold. So if you hear an occasional sniffle, just kind of bear with me. We, we want to get through this. And so uh, I want to now shift to uh, a question one of the producers wanted me to ask. What are some of the fluctuations you've observed in severe weather parameters like shear, instability, lift, moisture, freezing levels? Have you seen anything in, in, in those particular? Uh, parameters, uh, parameters of note. Of note. Yeah, th- this is actually a harder question to answer than, than we would like to, to think. Uh, one of the problems is, is that we, we, we have some sort of notions about what the average changes uh, should be, uh, just based on as, as the planet warms, these are, you know, we expect things to happen in the, and with the uh, low latitudes warming more than the high latitudes. Uh, we, we have certain expectations on, on sort of on average, but we really care about the combinations of things. When do, when do things happen? And I think what we, what we see over the, over the central part of the United States over the years is uh, an increase in the, in the highest values of CAPE, the uh, energy that's available to make, to make storms 
to make storms go. Uh, we see on average a, a little bit of a decrease in the wind shear, which is related to the to the change in the in the in the temperature gradient, so low latitude to high latitude temperatures. But that that doesn't seem to be as big as we might have expected it to be, especially when we restrict ourselves to conditions in which there's at least some cape available to, to get the to get storms going. The other thing that we now we just recently have 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 seen is there's actually it appears that there's actually been a, a de- an increase in the last in the last 40 years on what we call convective inhibition. Uh, the, the little warm layer typically that's seen uh, a few thousand feet above the ground that tends to inhibit storms from forming. And the balance between all those things is is really hard to pull to pull out exactly what's been going on. Uh, and the the changes in in the in the inhibition appear to be the largest over the plains of the U.S. So even though we we may have seen an increase in the available energy, the inhibition's also gone up, and that the the interpretation of what of what does what happens then is is really complicated. But it's it's different than when we look in other places of the world. Um, there's there's been energy increases over over Europe, but they, we don't really see the same kind of of, of an increase in the inhibition. And so that's one of the lessons we've learned recently is that uh, is that there's a lot of variability from location to location around the planet, and it's probably related to uh, the differences in the in the main geographic features, the mountain ranges and the and the the warm bodies of water. And for you weather geeks listeners out there, you heard Dr. Brooks mention some terms that you may be familiar with, like CAPE and convective inhibition or CIN, C-I-N. So uh, those are some nice geeky weather geek terms that uh, if you're not familiar with them, uh, Dr. Brooks did a nice job of explaining what they are and why they're so important in sort of the formation of severe weather or the, uh, if you will, the intensity of severe weather. Now I'd like to tackle individual threats and let's kind of pivot right to climate change impacts. And some of them, there are misconceptions on some of these, so hopefully you can clear the record on some of these. Are there any relationships at this time or conclusive things that we can say about the relationships between climate change and the hail reports in size? Yeah. The, well, and, and, and just as, a, as background to this, when we, when we look at, at climate change impacts on any aspects of, aspect of weather, the way I like to think about it is there are, are certain things that we have a lot of confidence in because there's a really direct physical relationship. We can even go back before temperature changes and just and just look at what happens when we increase carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And one of the uh, one of the things that happens onto on the to vegetation is that there are some plants such as, and particularly ragweed, that actually produces more pollen in response to carbon dioxide being in the atmosphere. Uh, and so. Ragweed's a much more prolific producer of, of pollen now than it was, say, a couple of centuries ago. I can relate that's to that. That's a really that. direct effect. Yeah, that's scary. And, and it's probably also true that uh, the thing that, um, that, in, in, that affects me in my life a lot is it's likely that, uh, that red cedar also produces more pollen, uh, which I live with on a regular basis here and <laughs> have allergies associated with it. Uh, that's a pretty direct physical relationship. Then when we go to the fact that when you look at things that are associated with temperature, our, our relationships are, are well grounded there. You know, if the, if the global temperature goes up, you probably expect certain aspects of heat waves to increase in intensity. As we go further down the road away from those direct relationships with global temperatures, things get a lot harder. So when we start looking at things like severe thunderstorms, we now have several more links to make in the chain, and that makes it a little harder to tell. Uh, now, hail is one we actually have 
some observations, uh, and even though we don't have physical, uh, we don't have all the physical links everywhere un understood, we have some pretty good understanding of, of probably what's going on. And with hail, one of the things that, there are several aspects of storms that affect hail size. One of them is essentially how strong the updrafts are in a thunderstorm. So if we make updrafts stronger, which we typically get with, with more energy available for storms, then we'll be, we're able to support larger hailstones. Uh, and that's a, that's a relatively straightforward thing. The one of the limitations on that, however, is that if the updrafts become too strong, it takes a while to grow large hail. So if the updrafts become really, really, really strong, we might actually throw the, the small pieces of hail out the top of the storm in effect before they can grow to be a large size. So when we look currently at, at the environments in which hail, hail forms, particularly when we look at the amount of energy available for storms, it looks like there's, I don't want to say an upper limit, but the, the probability of getting really large hail when the updraft gets in really strong or when the energy gets really high, it starts to tail off just a little bit. There's a sort of a, a Goldilocks range to get the, the largest hail. The other thing that happens is as the, as the planet warms uh, and we will we'll raise the level at what we call the freezing level, the level at which as the hail starts to fall, it'll start to melt. Um, now, really large hailstones, say you know, two inch in, di in, in diameter, if they don't lose a whole lot of their weight as they fall uh, because they, they fall so quickly. Uh, as, as a rule of thumb, here's, here's the rule of thumb that I can always remember is that a baseball size hailstone falls at about 100 miles an hour. Right. So a baseball size hailstone falls like a major league pitcher's fastball. Uh, and so it doesn't take very long to come down to the ground, and so it doesn't have much time to melt. Really small hail or, or hail that's less than an inch actually has a long time to melt as it falls. So as we raise the freezing level, we, we might, we'll start to have a little bit more melting. And we, there's some data from other countries, uh, from China and, and particular hail pad networks in, in France and Italy, where we, we've seen evidence that um, – of a, of a shift in the distribution of hail sizes that the really small hail is not occurring there as frequently as it did. And they're leaving slightly larger hail. Now those hail pads, they're typically looking at hail that's only up to about an inch. So it's, it's small hail by, by the really severe storm standards, but we are seeing a little bit of a shift in that. And we expect that shift to, to continue. It probably won't affect the size of the largest hail because just it doesn't have time to melt but the change in energy will probably allow us to have larger hailstones. And, but our, unfortunately our reporting databases are, we depend upon people uh, or something to, to report things. Unlike, you know, you put out a, a thermometer and you can let it sit by itself and it'll measure things over a rain gauge. You can put it out. Um, we depend on, on target of opportunity observations. And so we really don't have the observational record to have real high confidence in, in, in the large hail changes. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And we are
are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Harold Brooks from the National Severe Storms Research Lab, which is a very important lab uh, of NOAA. And we're talking about, we're walking through the various severe weather uh, occurrences, the type of occurrences that we can have, hail, uh, tornadoes, uh, damaging winds. And so you just heard Dr. Brooks talk about what we know about climate change and perhaps hail frequency, size, and, and so forth. Now I want to shift to non-tornadic damaging wind occurrence and intensity. Any any links or publications there in the literature as, as it relates to climate change? Uh, this is probably the toughest one in some sense, uh, in that the, the database issues become really large in, in wind reports. Um, what we do understand from our, as we look at how, as, as we look at the, how the, observation or how the environments are changing and expected to change is that we probably will see an increase in non-tornadic wind events. Uh, wind can happen in a lot of, a lot of, a lot of different kinds of situations uh, from an isolated microburst where essentially a small thunderstorm goes up and collapses and winds come down to, which used to be a huge problem for aircraft uh, in the, in the United States and then really large organized systems that can have widespread areas of wind, and those occur in really different environments. Our expectations is are right now are that we will we'll see an increase in the in the frequency of non-tornadic wind events, particularly on those low end, uh, the 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 low she- what we call low shear environments. Uh, it, probably because as as shear changes over the years, but that's really hard to pull out. Still. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate that that's something that we don't, we have, with, with hail, we have some chance to do some remote sensing. Uh, wind is really hard to do with remote sensing because if it gets far away from the radar, you just don't see it very much. And a lot of these events are, are so small scale that we don't have an observational network that really captures them. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And I want to mention, I, I was a co-author on a National Academy's uh, report on attribution of extreme weather and climate change back in 2016. And these severe convective storms, essentially what we're talking about today, uh, they rank lower on our confidence scale, if you will, of, of the ability to attribute to, uh, to climate change for some of the very reasons that Dr. Brooks is talking about, availability of data, uh, long-term records, if you will, and even the ability of the models to simulate them. In that in that study, we used the three pillars of the stool. We had to understand the physical mechanisms, data availability, and how long-term it was, and whether the climate models could reproduce them. So some of what you're hearing from Dr. Brooks is very consistent with what, what we wrote in that report. Report. Now, the one that gets a lot of attention, tornado frequency and intensity. Now, I know you've done some of the most important work on sort of apparent increases in tornadic activity, but some of that is related to uh, biases because we now have radar that detect them. But what is the current knowledge of tornado frequency and intensity as it relates to climate change? Um, well, this is, this is in, in many ways the sort of almost the holy grail question for us uh, that we're, we're trying to figure out. And here's where we have the problems with really the physical linkages to completely understand what, what's going on. So we, I think we kind of understand what we can do with the, with we I think of as the best quality data. Um, but we've had so many changes in the way we collect reports and the way we evaluate tornadoes that we have to be, have to be very careful with it. And there's always gonna be questions. Uh, it appears right now that if we eliminate the, the weakest of the tornadoes, the F-Zero tornadoes, 
the F1 and greater count has been relatively consistently collected since the somewhere in the mid 1950s. Uh, it, there probably are still some issues. Uh, when you go above that in the the early part of the record through the through the mid 70s, um, a lot of the tornadoes are overrated compared to what we would have we would expected later, and that just had to do with the process. The the Weather Service didn't adopt the Fujita scale until the mid 1970s, and then they retroactively rated those old tornadoes. And it looks like the the group that did that probably overestimated the intensity compared to what we would have done while we were regularly doing the observations, and we can't repair that because uh, we don't have any more information than the people who did really, really then. That's going to be really hard to do anything with. So what we actually have seen now are, are, are several things. One of them has to do with um, the, if we look on a decadal average, the number of tornadoes hasn't changed. There's a little bit, a little bit below 500 tornadoes that are F1 and greater each year in the United States, and no matter what decade you look at, that's roughly what the number is. But what we have seen is an increase in variability of, of occurrence. Uh, we had, if we go just go back to 2011 and 2012, we set records for the most tornadoes in a 365-day period, followed immediately by the record for the fewest. Uh, and we also saw we also saw that the that the the number of days per year with at least one F1 and greater tornado has dropped from roughly 150 days per year in the in the 1970s down to about 90 now. Uh, but at the same time, we've seen an increase in the number of days with a lot of tornadoes. If you look at, say, 30 tornadoes, F1 and greater, on a day, that was there was roughly one every other year in the 1970s, and we now run two to three per year, even in the years where we've had um, a f small number of, of tornadoes occurring. We've still had big count days that have taken place. And associated with that, the the apparent beginning of the season, which is a hard concept to actually define, has also become more variable. If we did a, a study where we looked at the the occurrence of the fifth, the date of occurrence of the fiftieth F1 and greater tornadoes, so that's ten percent into the year of on, a, on an average year, and the the in the, in the last twenty years we've had the four or five earliest starts to the season and the four or five latest starts to the season out of the 60 plus year record. And so we're starting to see more variability on that. And if you build statistical models, all of these things, fewer days, but more big days, they all go together. We've also seen a shift in, it, it, it appear, the, and it, it appears to be more tornadoes occurring in what we might think of as the Mid-South, uh, sort of the area, say from Paducah to Memphis, and then draw a circle around that uh, area. Uh, and, and maybe a slight decrease over, the, say, the Texas Panhandle up through up through Western Kansas. Uh, and and the important thing about that actually is is that the when we go into the mid south, we're going into a more populated area, and more of the tornadoes occur after dark. And so there's a even though the the overall number in the country hasn't changed, that little change in the in the location could have important impacts for on on populations. We don't have a physical, full physical process. We have seen with that one, we, we, with the change towards the Mid-South, we have seen a, uh, a corresponding change in the distribution of the favorable environments for storms. If we look at some of the things that are used to forecast them, they have also have changed in, this, in the same way. So that makes us think it's not just a reporting issue, it's actually really physically occurred. 
Unfortunately, we don't have the full physical mechanism and linkage to go to that. At this point, we don't see any evidence there's been any changes of, in intensity. Uh, that doesn't appear to have changed anything beyond that we can sort out from the from the changes in reporting that have taken place. And, and I know that you and a, a former student of ours at the University of Georgia, Dr. Victor Gensini, who's now at Northern Illinois University, published on that shift, or if you will, or, you know, in prevalence of what we call or some people call Dixie Alley as opposed to the more traditional Tornado Alley. So uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. And I, I know that NOAA uh, had led or is leading an effort called Vortex Southeast, actually, which is an extension of a previous series of, of exper- field experiments to understand these tornadoes that tend to happen in the very populated, densely populated South. Uh, there's a marginalized population in the South. Um, some of the, the, the places in so-called Dixie Alley, uh, some of the economically, more economically disadvantaged parts of the country. And so there's more vulnerability there. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, we tend to see a lot of nocturnal tornadoes along these, uh, qua- what I guess they're called quasi-linear convective systems or QLCS type tornadoes. So very challenging problem. I want to I wanted, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. You know, and one of the other things about uh, one of the things about the southeast, if you if, if you look at a map, um, there, there are a couple of questions. One is the prevalence of QLCS tornadoes in the southeast. They tend QLCS tornadoes tend not to kill very many people. But one of the questions that I really wish I had an answer to is how does our performance of forecasting them? Because uh, we don't forecast them as well as we do isolated supercell tornadoes. Uh, how does our, our performance on forecasting them affect how people respond to the forecast of other events? Uh, do they lose confidence in them because we can't, they're harder to forecast? The other big factor in the Southeast that, you know, I, I saw a map a few years ago that struck me you know, really hard, that the big difference in the Southeast and the, and the Plains is rural population densities. Uh, rural population densities in, in sort of in Mississippi East, in the southeast, tend to run, you know, on the order of 10 people per square kilometer. You know, there's like a there's a some sort of a living unit every you know several hundred feet. Uh, you go to the you come out to the plains, and those numbers are like, you know, 100 times smaller. It's maybe a tenth of a person per per square kilometer. So a tornado in the in the in the rural areas in the southeast, there's so many people there that it will hit people. You put that same tornado into the plains and you can have it on the ground for many miles and it may not hit a building at all. And how we deal with the rural populations is, a, is really hard to figure out because that there's lots of issues that go in with communication, with being aware of where people are that really are challenging to deal with. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I'm always very cognizant of that. And I know James Spann talks about this a lot, too, because, you know, there tends to be oftentimes a warning bias for the urban communities and certainly um, the the rural communities face uh, this uh, risk as well. Harold, one of the things that I know you've done research on, and I want to dive deep on this a little bit, tornado days and tornado outbreak days. First of all, I mean, this is an interesting one because there's been a lot of debate on what in the world a tornado outbreak is. How do you define what an outbreak is? So I guess my question for you is how do you break these down? And have you seen any trends in tornado days and tornado outbreak days? Well, outbreaks are, you know, there are as many definitions of outbreaks as there are people who have tried to define it. Uh, it's, It's a really fuzzy kind of a concept. And when I 
you know, I, I have students who want to deal with it. And I basically say it comes down to, you know, I, I try to, I like to think of, you know, some fraction of the biggest days of the, of a year uh, or, of a, or of a decade. Do we want to look at the, you know, if you want to do real detailed case study analyses, you can't do very many. So we're only going to look at the, maybe the top, you know, three or four year, days each year. Uh, if you want to get really large statistics and be able to do lots of statistical modeling, then okay, maybe we look at the biggest, you know, 50 days of each year. And so how you want to define that, I, I typically tend to, you know, think of something that looks at maybe the, you know, the top few percent of each year. I want to know what the, have we seen changes in the, uh, in maybe the, the, the statistics of the top 10 days per year, uh, which leads to, uh, there's an arbitrary definition that you have to go through at some point if you're going to try to be consistent. Uh, and that, you know, and if you do the top 10 days and you're looking at typically at something that looks like maybe 20 F1 and greater uh, tornadoes a, 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 a on a day. Uh, and that leads you to, you know, large enough. I mean, it's one of these things when we, when we talk about it, there are certain days that, that if your definition doesn't include them, your definition's wrong. I mean, if you don't include April 27th, 2011, or April 3rd, 1974, or May 3rd, 1999, if those don't make your outbreak definition, you know, something's wrong. Yeah, right. Those, uh, are, your right. those are your baselines, exactly. exactly. You know, yeah. But, but then when you get down to the things like, well, you know, there were, you know, there were, you know, 10 tornadoes in kind of a small area on some day in, you know, in some some day in April of, of 1991. Is that an outbreak? Maybe. <laughs> and so there's there's a lot of fuzziness there that depends on on the purpose of what you're what you're what you're doing. Back in my my days of doing physics, there I read a book that was talked about operational definitions uh, and sort of defining concepts by how we measure them and how we def and how we talk about them. And that's kind of what 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 we we want to come up with. Uh, and that's, I, I try not to get too hung up on what an outbreak day is, but I'll say, okay, the number, you know, when we look at the really big things, this has happened. And when we, and when we look at slightly bigger, we also see this pattern and we get an idea of how things are changing. Yeah, that's a great point. We're talking with Dr. Harold Brooks from NSSL, uh, expert on tornadoes. So just to kind of put a bow on the discussion, are, are we seeing any trends in tornado days or tornado outbreak days? We've seen a large drop in the number of days with at least one F1 and greater tornado over the last over the last 40 years. Uh, it was about 150 days per year in the 1970s, and now it's about 90. Uh, but at the same time, we're seeing an increase in the number of, of days with a lot of tornadoes. So if we just say, as an extreme example, uh, 30 day 30 tornadoes on a on a day F1 and greater, which on average over the course of, the, of our record going back to the mid 1950s, there's about one of those on average. A year. Uh, in the 1970s, we had one every other year, and now we run two to three per per year. Uh, and even even in years that have been relatively quiet, so like 2014, 2015, um, we we still had two to three. Uh, and so that appears to be a fairly significant change. Uh, and it's really hard to explain those two things together by anything that's happened in our in our reporting system, because you would expect that if we're putting more effort in uh, and we would see both more days and more big days. And if we were, if we had become more cautious in our approach, we'd see fewer days and we'd see fewer big days. Instead we see fewer days, but more big days. And I just, 
you have to make a really convoluted argument to come up with something that says that, that that's because of the reporting thing. So I think it's actually physically real. Uh, and I think there's some other evidence that kind of points in that direction. So I, I think we really have seen that. How far that goes forward in the future is a really interesting question. And I don't know if we, if we, we have any way to really ask the, answer that right now. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the last segment of the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with my colleague, Dr. Harold Brooks from NSSL, the uh, uh, world-class research laboratory of NOAA, thinking about severe storms out in, out in Oklahoma. I want to get your thoughts on something. So one of the more, I, I think, controversial things that I've seen in the whole climate change attribution world, Harold, is this idea of Arctic amplification, things that Dr. Jennifer Francis and colleagues have published about, which suggests that because the Arctic is warming, you're seeing sort of a relaxing of the gradient between the tropic and the poles, and that leads to changes in the jet stream pattern, which leads to more highly amplified wave patterns, which in turn could have some impacts on severe weather. What are your thoughts on all of that? This is one of these days that I'm glad I'm not a large-scale dynamicist. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I okay. It's this is so intriguing. Um, I mean, it, it it could be the it could be an explanation for for a lot of what we've seen because if we if we change the the large-scale pattern in which or frequency of of patterns that we, we see in the atmosphere, that could explain a lot of the changes we see in the tornado record. But here's where our, our causal linkages fall apart. Um, I, I'm not a large-scale dynamicist, so I really have a hard time evaluating uh, Professor Francis's uh, you know, explanation. And that's not saying that it's wrong at all. I'm just, that's, you know, as, as you know, Marshall, when we, you know, when you work in, in a field, you know a lot about parts of it, and the parts that, as they get further away from what your core specialty are, boy, you start to struggle with even understanding. I think people don't, you know, we, well, this isn't like the professor on Gilligan's Island where, you know, <laughs> one guy knows everything about science. Right. You know, right. even within, even within meteorology, there's stuff that, you know, I have no idea if, right. if, you right. know, how, how good or, how good or bad the work is. Um, and, but then even, okay, let's assume that that she has that physical part down. I know that if the patterns change, we'll see changes in, in various things associated with tornadoes. We haven't been able to do the, to do the analysis to see how the patterns have changed and do those pattern changes actually lead to the kinds of changes we've seen. It's possible that the pattern changes may actually, you know, if we actually had a really good physical model, they may actually not fit with what we've seen. And that's, that's, I think, real, one of the real stumbling blocks. We're starting to do some work to try to look at long-term changes in, in occurrence of favorable patterns. And pattern is a, is a pretty fuzzy word, but basically, the, uh, you know, 
you know, we have a, a trough in the right place, and that means we should be having other ingredients in the atmosphere coming together to make the right kinds of things to make a tornado, and how frequently they, they go in. There's a real, there's a really intriguing sets of aspects about this. One of them has to do with subseasonal forecasting, uh, trying to do the forecast of three to four weeks in advance, which uh, Victor Gensini and John Allen uh, and, and and David Gold had some success last spring forecasting the the busy last couple of weeks in May uh, uh, for tornadoes and severe storms. Uh, and that's basically based on favorable pattern things. We can now go back. There's a, there's a, a relatively new uh, concept called uh, the, the, the 20th century reanalysis, which goes back longer than any other reanalysis to try to put together our best guess of what the atmosphere looks like. It doesn't have as high of, high of quality data going into it as the more recent reanalyses that have satellite data and, upper air balloon data, uh, but it goes back a lot further and it looks like it's pretty good. Uh, and what we want to try to do is go back over the history of it, which actually now extends back to roughly 1870, uh, actually a little bit earlier, but I think the quality stuff goes back to about 1870 and actually look for the frequency of these patterns. Do we actually see changes in the patterns over that very, very long uh, time record? that would actually be consistent with changes that we've observed in the frequency of, of, of tornado, good tornado days and then really, really good big tornado days with lots of tornadoes occurring. But that's a hard problem, uh, and it's going to take quite a while to get it, to get it completely sorted out. But um, that's where we're headed to. But it's, and, and there's a – this is a – you know, if we have seen this change in the patterns, that really will speak to – how we can do with sort of the, the, the seasonal forecasting or even the long-term climate projections. Because right now, the, the noise around the signal of any tornado changes we, that might have actually physically occurred are, are, are changes from year to year. The interannual variability is so large that detecting a tr any real trends will take a very, very long time. And, and you were bumping up against the last question that I actually wanted to ask you as, as an expert in this field going forward. What do you need? What What are the key pieces of data or model simulations that you need if you could just sort of make, wave a magic wand and produce sort of what you need to really sort of get it and crack the nut on some of these pressing questions in your sort of sub-discipline? Uh, what would, yeah, what, what would, would you say what you, would you need? Say you I think there are three big things. Uh, one of them is our, our better reanalyses. Uh, so looking back in the past, uh, the the new there's a new one out from from the European Center called Era Five, which has very high vertical resolution, and that's its I think its strongest thing. One of the things about the reanalyses, uh, when I started doing work with reanalysis data back 20 years ago, now uh, the the spacing in both horizontally and vertically was was really large. And so it wasn't, you couldn't see a whole lot, you know, the, the grid boxes were, you know, 120 miles apart and we only had a few levels. So you couldn't see things that had really strong gradients, which are important for severe weather. Now we've got the, the new data are allowing us to look at things like the convective inhibition that we didn't used to. We, we need those to be better and be able to look over longer periods of time going back because if we care about extreme events, we really need long records. That's one. Similarly, on the, the related to that, are our better, better climate model forecast of what conditions will be like for weather. Uh, we know that the, the, the climate models are incredibly good at doing sort of annual average kinds of calculations, and we have good confidence in what's going to be happening 
in terms of global average, even continental scale averages over over you know periods of years. But we need to get them to reproduce day-to-day weather really well to try to do the kinds of things we want to do. And then finally, one of the one of the other pieces that's that's has been really useful that the computer time is is the main limitation right now are the use of of convection allowing models that maybe have grid spacings of of one to three kilometers that you can embed within those large scale climate models, much like we do currently with day-to-day weather forecasting, uh, and run lots of those and, and, and let those convection allowing models tell us a lot about what the weather out of that large scale pattern of that day looks like. Uh, right now, it's, you know, we can run those models and they run at maybe, you know, they'll finish a run in maybe 10% of real time so you can get make a forecast from it. But if you want to do that for a century, that takes 10 years to do with one with one model. We need to have better better models that we can interpret better, but also that we get the computer time we can be able to, to run that and we actually see the, the forecast variability for the future. Yeah, yeah, and I, I agree with those things. There are two really quick questions I want answers I want to get out of you before I let you go because they're just things that I see debated in social media. Quickly, do you consider the, uh, that there's a tornado season? In, in other words, you hear people talk about a hurricane season. Uh, I, I saw some debate on Twitter recently about the concept of a tornado season, uh, when in fact we can have a tornado essentially any at any month of the year, particularly here in the southeast. We even have a peak uh, in in the early late fall, early winter. So tornado season, and do you think we are going to get beyond 14, 15 minutes of lead time on tornado uh, warnings, uh, and should we? First question, in, in some parts of the country, some parts of the world, I think you can pretty well define a tornado season where almost all tornadoes occur in them. Uh, one of the things that makes the plains unique is a very strong annual cycle and a very strong diurnal cycle. 75% of tornadoes within 100 miles of Oklahoma City occur between 5 p.m. and 9 p.m. at night and will occur between roughly the 1st of April and the 15th of June. You get out of the plains, and that's not true. Uh, you can't make a... a you, you just can't say that. And so, yeah, maybe in some places there is, but not on a national level. Um, as far as the lead time, right now the, the lead time is dominated in large part by non-meteorological factors. Um, the, there's, the studies indicate that a lead time going up to about 15 minutes decreases the, the death rates within tornadoes. Uh, but beyond that, there's no evidence that increasing it actually improves that particular outcome, at least the outcome of of preventing deaths. Uh, And I think some of it goes back to historically, when back from the county warning era, the size of a county and where you kind of wanted to put the warning up before it got to the next county, but you didn't want to warn too far downstream because the people in between where the storm is now and that final county you're warning, there might be confusion as to whether they're warned or if they're they're safe now. the one of the real questions is that we provide, try to provide more information to people is that it's quite possible that there are a lot of users that would find value from longer term forecast. And in particular, we're, we're involved in a study right now to see uh, something like businesses. Would they make better decisions with with longer lead time forecast information? I don't want to say warning. Um, you know, would they would they continue to manufacture, continue to be open for a longer period of time, and thus save themselves money. 
we get occasionally get caught up in the trying to reduce the death toll and the, the death toll from tornadoes depends on so much other than the forecast. You know, do you right. have an adequate, you get the information, do you have an adequate shelter you can get to in an, in any time, you know, we go back to the Southeast. If you're living in a mobile home in rural South in rural, in the rural Southeast uh, and you're elderly, so you don't move really quickly, you know, you don't have very many options. Uh, and I think that's one of the things is that we need to try to move away from, from thinking about death as a, or reducing deaths as a, as a good metric, because, you know, you get unlucky in the, you know, the, you know, the tornado that hit uh, Lee County, uh, Alabama earlier this year, you move that tornado by a few miles and there may be the death toll might drop to almost nothing because it, it went, goes through a strike where there's no population. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so that's a, that's a great point. And this is unfortunately where we're going to have to end it. I actually have so much more that I could have talked to Dr. Brooks about. But before we get out of here, it's time for this episode's Geek of the Week. This week's uh, geek is Melissa Sizemore, Emergency Management Officer in Birmingham, Alabama. Melissa has loved weather since she was a kid. And once she saw the movie Twister, aha, she knew she had found her passion. Given her love of severe storms, it's no surprise her most memorable weather event was the Canadian Texas Tornado. May 17, 2015. While she's passionate about the weather, she's also dedicated to bridging the gaps between weather and emergency management professionals who play vital roles in preparing communities in the path of a storm, which Dr. Brooks was just talking about. When she's not in the office, she enjoys photographing the weather and storm chasing with her husband. If you want to follow Melissa, you can check her out on Twitter at S-O-U-T-H-R-N underscore M-E-L-L-E. Congratulations, Melissa, our Geek of the Week. And Harold, I want to thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Weather Geeks podcast. Enjoyed it anytime. Absolutely. And uh, we'll certainly have you back because there is a lot more that I want to talk to you about on a lot of topics, actually. But for now, this has been the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We'll see you next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.